This is Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast, and I am your host, Bet Lucas. I am a mom of six crazy kids. I work as a VP in a fast-paced industry, and I've been on a health journey. But what does living your big, bold life even mean? Living boldly is having the courage to finally listen and do what your heart has been trying to tell you all along. Maybe it's to take back your health, write the book, go for the job, run the race. And I'm here to help you listen to that voice and to remind you to be you boldly. The world needs you. Hello, everyone. It's Bet. Welcome to Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast. You guys, I am thrilled to have Dr. Pran Yoganathan on the show. He's a gastroenterologist and a hepatologist. He's out of Sydney, Australia. And to be honest, he is one of my favorite, favorite people to follow on Instagram. I find his perspectives bold, enlightening, and they always cause me to kind of stop and think. And I hope after today's episode, you'll be inspired to do the same. It's always so exciting to have a medical practitioner on the show, especially one that thinks boldly. And we tackle many of the questions that you might ask your GI doctor when it comes to red meat, fiber, gluten, weight loss, protein, nutrient density, and more. Since Dr. Pran is based in Sydney, Australia, a 17-hour time difference, you can imagine that it wasn't always the easiest to try to find a time that worked for both of us and add in the fact that we both live pretty busy, hectic lives and we both have a family. So we finally find a time that works and I was so excited about how the interview turned out. When it came time to edit this episode with my sound editors, we found out that there was a software issue with my portion of the audio. What did that mean? That meant that my portion of the audio was completely unfixable. I was devastated. And usually during recording, that error shows up, but it didn't this time. And to be honest, you guys, I was pretty devastated. I had really looked forward to this interview. I knew that it was pretty special that I got this time with Dr. Pran. And I knew if the audio probably didn't work on my end, the chance of getting him back on the show anytime soon wouldn't be good. So to be honest, I just put this audio away. I put it away. I thought, nope, it's unusable. Can't make it work. And then... I listened to an episode where Cindy Crawford was telling her story, and I believe it was on one of Oprah's podcasts. And on this podcast, Oprah was really not talking at all. And in fact, you can tell that they edited out a lot of the questions that Cindy was asked, and it allowed you to just listen to Cindy's story and her perspectives and her thoughts. I really believe in some odd way, my audio aired for a reason. As always, I learned so much from the guests I have on this show. But it's interesting how the interview process also teaches me so much. I learned that sometimes when I'm in a rut or I think I can't solve the problem, 
sometimes it is good to just put it aside for a little bit, kind of forget about it. And that is what I did. Because often what feels like an elephant today feels like a mountain you cannot climb, a mess you cannot fix. By tomorrow, by next week, by next month, that elephant looks a whole heck of a lot smaller. That mountain is now a hill. And that mess looks like just a little bit of dust. Maybe you have something in your life right now that you feel is unfixable. Maybe it's time to just put it aside for a day, a week, or a month. And now maybe your time to relook at it with new eyes and a fresh perspective. And instead of feeling like you failed or you lost, maybe it's a reminder that you just learned. Like the famous Nelson Mandela quote, I never lose, either I win or I learn. Boy, did I learn something this week. Here's Dr. Prant Yoganathan. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate you um, inviting me to be on your on your podcast and your show. So I'm a gastroenterologist and a hepatologist based in Sydney, Australia. I've been in the healthcare or disease management industry for uh, about 20 years as a as a doctor, which is a long time, which is enough time to certainly get a feeling for what this industry entails. And that's fundamentally what it is. It is largely an industry, uh, which I've come to realize it's in your neck of the woods in America. It's a, it's a trillion dollar industry and globally as well. So we fundamentally got a, we've got a system that is um, built on a foundation that's very shaky. And we can touch on that uh, a bit later. But these are some of the realizations I've come to have in my 20 years of uh, practice. I work as a clinical gastroenterologist, so we do uh, everything from endoscopies, colonoscopies, and, and other interventional endoscopic procedures. But a lot of my work is primarily outpatient-based, which is where I meet with people, I talk to people. We see everything that ranges from gut symptoms, uh, from irritable bowel to inflammatory bowel disease, to reflux, abdominal bloating, just a wide variety of gastrointestinal symptoms. And over time, I just realized how prevalent this is in the community and uh, just wanted to explore other ways of potentially tackling it. And I think um, uh, to approaching my mid-30s, I certainly noticed a decline in my own physical health. And, and, and despite doing everything by the book, uh, like medical school taught me from a lifestyle perspective. So just had to, to, to rethink things. And I think once you fall into that rabbit hole, it's like uh, Alice uh, falling into that uh, deep cavern, isn't it? And, and you, you sort of realize there's a whole... Uh, different world beyond that, which you can discover, which is fantastic. And so my whole uh, practice now revolves around kind of implementing that with a team of good quality dietitians. We've got personal trainers and physical therapists and so forth that we are closely affiliated with. And so try and provide a more holistic experience for, for my clients if they're open to the idea, of course. We, we've got a stunning statistic here in Australia on a Australian Bureau of Statistics survey done in 2005 so that this was literally seven years ago a fairly long time in the great scheme of things and this revealed about 60 percent of our medical personnel this is doctors are either overweight or obese that's a stunning statistic a very sobering statistic so really the people that are in charge of your health 
have no very little idea how to achieve help themselves, the vast majority, um, right? And so you're in this situation whereby you really need to look at the model, reassess the model and, and change it moving forward. So that, that I think is a big issue because we as doctors, we, we're trained in the art of disease. Uh, we're not trained in the art of wellness and keeping people well. That's not how it works. And sadly, uh, disease is so rampant, so rife that, you know, this has been a positive feedback loop in the sense that there's been no incentive to seek out another way of doing it. But I think we're all at a critical point in humanity. I think most people sense that, you know, something something big's around the corner. And I think the um, pandemic in the last two years is certainly uh, the COVID pandemic has certainly um, certainly revealed um, that we are uh, we we need to revisit things. We need to change things, change the way we're doing it, because we can see that the uh, those that are uh, that are obese, metabolically unwell, diabetic, these people are uh, significantly more predisposed to poor outcomes with this illness. Yet the stunning thing for me is just the lack of public health around this topic. It has really been sobering to watch, but uh, hopefully. In the horizon, we start start relooking at, at at this and start implementing some good processes uh, along the way. It's interesting. Like I, I I recall a conversation about six seven years ago um, with my two brother in laws who, who are both very um, avid hunters, very fit guys. You know, from a farming background, they're both um, Australian born and bred from from very proud farming stock. I remember I was eating a whole bowl of broccoli and these guys were tucking into a uh, a nice, um, I think it was a steak meal or, or lamb or something like this. And and we discussed that. I said, look, plant-based is the way to go. And, and this is what we're taught in med school, that meat is fundamentally bad. And uh, I remember the deep discussion along that. And I realized how cognitively dissonant that must have seemed because these were both uh, supremely fit guys, and I certainly wasn't at the peak of my my physical health uh, at that present point in time. I was following everything, um, you know. And med school really did demonise saturated fat and red meat. They they really did, and uh, they made it basically uh, the, the, a cause for many diseases, including heart disease and colorectal cancer and so forth. Which, in retrospect, is just we now know is just plain wrong. And so th- these were some of the some of the experiences that I've had. And, and, and I think as, as time went on, I just realized that despite doing, doing all of this, my physical health was declining. I just didn't have the energy. I was starting to put on more visceral fat. And so just looked at a, a different way of doing things. And, and I think um, there's quite a few doctors in this space now, in particular around that low carb movement, which um, I became very closely affiliated with. And it's, it's really changed my mindset on, on how it works. This is the concept that I've come to really embrace. It's this concept of personalized nutrition, which is that we're all built different and we can't use this sort of reductionist approach, which is that one size fits all. It's um, You've really got to tailor it to people's um, people's desire, uh, to, to, to people's cultural belief systems, to, to, to taste, um, to the ethical predisposition. There's so many factors that go into all of this. And, um, and my team of dietitians, our team of dietitians have been fantastic in that perspective because they work around the individual. But one thing is certainly without negotiation bed is that that protein fundamentally is a, is a building block um, that makes us up. I mean, we talk about this whole debate with regards to carbohydrates versus fats. And I, I find that 
debate very, um, it's outdated uh, because both these things are energy sources fundamentally, but protein's a building block. It, we shouldn't be eating to fuel. We, we live in an era where there's excess fuel. We should be eating to reconstitute turnover fundamentally. And our body turns over these, these factors and we've got to replace it. But the stumbling blocks here is that, that meat's been so demonized, Beth. We've got big, big government-based agencies just putting out this message, red meat causes bowel cancer, when we know, you know, I don't need to revisit that data, but we know that's very flawed data. So when you've got public health messaging saying, well, protein's bad, or animal source proteins and plant-based proteins the way to go, that, that we've got an issue because we know that plant-based proteins are not as complete. I'm not saying it can't be done on a plant-based diet. It's just much more difficult. It's just fundamentally harder. Um, and I think some of the aspects that are not dis discussed more openly is the fact that it is harder to construct a plant-based diet that is palatable, uh, that is easy to follow. It's not as tasty. So then you've got to add in these external sources and energy-rich things. And, and I think the nutrient deprivation that arises from that just has people hungry all the time. So they've just got to eat and they end up overeating calories. And, and so it all starts at a public health level. And, and you're right, like people are absolutely terrified of red meat. You can get diabetics in, who come to see you with gut issues. And, um, and I talk to them, I say, listen, your diets, you know, you're eating five times a day, you're eating very grain based, which is high calorie and low protein, we need to get you to up your protein. And straight away, it's this, well, red meat causes bowel cancer or eggs cause heart disease, which again, is just really outdated advice that hasn't been rectified. So these people will just keep doing the same thing over and over again without questioning why their health is deteriorating, why they're still symptomatic, why they're having to visit multiple specialists to deal with their issues. It's a challenge because people fall into these routines, especially the older they get, but they, they fall into these routines. The routines become destructive, but in a very insidious way, yet they're unable to uh, recognize. And this is the thing, you know, dietary misadventures that, that most people are on, they're very insidious. They, they break people down slowly. If the thing was uh, catastrophic and disastrous and acute, you know, people wouldn't do it. But the, the damage is so slow that people don't notice. And, uh, and I think that, that therein lies the issue. Uh, I, I read a sobering statistic that 75% of our energy now comes from refined grain. That's terrible. Um, it's terrible because this is a, a food source that made up a very small percentage of our energy intake historically. There basically is the issue. So I try and point this out to people. You have to do it very, very gently because like everyone's got a diet. So everyone feels that they can have an opinion about a diet because we all eat, right? And so it needs to be done really gently, you know, and I've refined my approach to it in the last, you know, few years. I've, I've received complaint letters from patients and I've taken all that on board and, and went away and looked at a better way of doing it because sometimes if you're too blunt about it right like people people take that the wrong way so it is a really slow process of breaking the person down my consultations which historically you know like a gastroenterology consultation can be done in 15-20 minutes if I was practicing like a standard gastroenterologist but mine continually keep blowing out you know I can spend an hour with the patient and and end up running late. So like with this method of practice, I'm seeing less patients. Uh, do you know what I mean? I'm doing less procedures. I'm 
I'm potentially remunerated less uh, despite having a desire to improve the health and, and do something fundamental long term about it. And this is the, the issue with the current model the way it is. It, it doesn't reward health outcomes. It just rewards a health interaction, if that makes sense. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one. But what I've been able to do is by building a team around me with these fantastic dietitians that I work with, uh, in particular, um, the lead dietitian is Jessica Turton uh, from Ellipse Health. We've been able to implement this much in a much cleaner way. I think patients are much more likely to take dietary advice from dietitians than doctors. I think patients understand that diet isn't the forte of, uh, of, of doctors. So I've got some dietitians very closely aligned to um, my way of thinking and we use a team-based approach. And often it takes multiple sessions to, to help these people. But one thing's for certain, once these people see the benefits it can have, it's very difficult to unsee it. And, you know, they, they, it tends to be a positive feedback loop where they fall into this um, health creation uh, loop. However, uh, the experience tells me that adherence can be a problem. Like people struggle to adhere to these things, even though they know it's beneficial. Um, certainly the impact of these lockdown and pandemic has had disastrous consequences on the adherence of, of people's diet and lifestyle. It's been a stressful environment. It's been financially, socially emotionally draining for a lot of people that they've fallen into um, behaviors that we can only call I, I guess uh, self-soothing and, and eating and drinking alcohol tends to be these habits that can provide short-term comfort short-term dopamine hits for people so it's a complicated one bet and adherence is one of these things that is very rarely talked about but unless one is adherent to their lifestyle change I don't like to call it a diet it's a lifestyle change fundamentally the you know the the health issues that they had before will come back and and so we we keep plugging away but it can be very very frustrating and very um uh, very heartbreaking if you're the type of doctor uh, or dietitian that kind of takes it on board we've almost got to learn to disconnect so we can be objective and 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 provide that care i think we live in a uh, an era of instant instant gratification, instant choices. And I think people expect that with their health. They want instant health, but it doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? It's you're only as healthy as the amount of work that you that you put into yourself and your own health. Um, and that has to become the routine. I think I think as a species we're 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 deeply prone to addictive behaviors. I think we all are. Um, but it's just about choosing your addiction, right? Like you know, if you're addicted to being healthy, well that's a that's a great thing. If you're addicted to, to to sort of improving yourself in the gym and pushing yourself that's a great thing and uh, I tend to favor uh, weight-based training because it just allows you that objective analysis where where you can go into a gym and and do a weight one day and then look to improve it the next day like there's a number to it and and we know the benefits of hypertrophy based training as well from a health perspective, but we need to start getting people to understand the fact that we're all going to have our routines. We're all going to have our little addictions. It's just about choosing the addiction wisely, uh, as cynical as that sounds, right? I think there's a, a bit of a perverse myth that women get bulky with weight-based training, and, and I think we know that that's incorrect. I think part of the epidemic or pandemic that we see uh, globally is, uh, as a species, I think we're profoundly under-muscled. I think, you know, we're, we're 
built for so much more. Um, and fortunately, this sedentary lifestyle and these low protein diets that we're all on has contributed to a, a significant under muscling and potentially with the, uh, with the compounding effects of the fact that we, we're now seeing massive loss of, you know, sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen, I think. So we, we've got this real big issue, really big issue with our musculoskeletal system, our skeletal muscle and bone. And I think people don't realize how important these factors are to your metabolic health, in particular muscle health. Um, so the two are interlinked. Um, and so when a lot of people talk about the obesity and diabetic uh, crisis, really, you could throw in the under-muscling of our species as a crisis as well. And so the issue with um, cardio-based training is, whilst I don't, I've got nothing against cardio-based training, but myself personally, I wouldn't, I do very little of it because we've got kilograms of fat and we've got these really slow twitch fibers. You, you could go for hours doing these type of exercise to, to burn the energy needed. Whereas with resistance-based training, you're really hitting those energy hungry muscle fibers, the type two muscle fibers. And if you cause hypertrophy and recruitment of these, you're really allowing yourself to burn energy in your sleep in an environment where you exist in a high energy environment where we're built for scarcity but we exist in a high energy environment. So we've got to kind of select the type of muscle that allows us to burn the energy. And the, that are these glycolytic muscle fibers, the type two muscle fibers, which resistance training to the point of fatigue will recruit. So I think that's an underutilized point. Uh, you know, people talk a lot about diet. I think exercise is something, in particular, the right type of exercise, something that, that needs to be brought into the equation as well if people are to achieve optimal health. Humans as a primate, well, I mean, we're, we're fascinating, absolutely fascinating. We, A lot of our evolution has been driven by aspects of climate change. You know, four million years ago, as, as these rainforests of, of Africa shrunk because of these massive climactic shifts, we saw Africa become a savanna. So these animals, which were primarily fruit-based, um, a primate-based ancestor, which probably resembled the, the monkeys we see now or potentially a, a a form of something not quite like a chimpanzee, but something similar because we, we share a common ancestor, obviously. These things were forced out of the trees onto the savannas, which is a much harsher environment because they were then, you know, uh, subject to the predatory um, system that existed on the ground below. So essentially this animal needed to scavenge and needed to get smarter with regards to evading evading these predators and, and, and diet fundamentally shifted quite significantly. So became more about tubers it became more about scavenging it became more about consuming insects and and it, again we talk about loops this was a positive feedback loop because what happened was this creature started getting smarter and smarter and then it learned the aspect of optimal foraging optimal foraging is basically going for these high yield foods you know things like bone marrow things like meat and as the primate became smarter and we know Homo erectus two million years ago was probably uh, the point in which this happened. It fundamentally became a hunter and it was able to utilize tools. It was able to utilize fire and it just allowed for that, that optimal foraging to get better and better and better um, up until about 10,000 years ago where we, we went from being these hunters and gatherers to, to being farmers, uh, something 
catastrophic must have must have occurred to to do that and we think again it was probably related to climactic shifts and and possibly people talk about the media strike in greenfield uh sorry in greenland which which potentially might have set set off a chain of events a perpetual winter almost that lasted a thousand years so people needed to farm so we've been through these massive changes but we we've adapted with that right like we've adapted with that so so every human in every part of the world that they've, they've got slightly different requirements because they've adapted for tens of thousands of years in that environment but one thing that is for certain is that no human in in that era would have ever devalued meat meat would have been a absolutely precious commodity you know and i grew up in rural africa where i saw that the, the africans absolutely revered meat it was scarce uh, because it was, you know, it was expensive. A lot of times they needed to hunt it even or, or get it from nearby farms through a bartering system that they had. But it was so valued and it was a celebrated thing. But we now in the West, we exist in this era of excess. You could drive through McDonald's and order a, order a burger. And, and, and so meat's kind of everywhere, but it's significantly diluted in comparison to the amounts that we would have had it in it, it would have made up the bulk of our, our caloric requirement and uh, rightly so. Whereas now we sort of exist in this refined carbohydrate, refined fat environment. So a lot of our consumption is, is very, very protein diluted. And that's fundamentally what drives a lot of modern, modern illness. Hi, everyone. It's Bet. I hope you are enjoying today's episode. You can find me here every week. If you have a spare moment, I'd very much appreciate a review. Your reviews make a difference. It also makes a difference if you share this episode or the podcast with a friend. Your word of mouth is everything. If you'd like to connect with me more, look in the show notes where I've linked my private Facebook group, Motivate with Big Bold Life Podcast, and links to my social media. When you're here, you'll find that we boldly tackle topics around health, family, work, and more. Now, back to our guests. Yeah, so I, I've always believed just eat when you're hungry. Um, but I think one caveat to that is as you age, um, you've got to eat to survive, basically. Eat to, eat to, eat to live, eat to live. So we, when, we're, when we're kids, we eat to grow. When we're adults, especially in that reproductive age, we eat to maintain. And I think when you're beyond the age of about 40 or 50, I think you've really got to eat to live. So I think, um, uh, interestingly, a lot of times people's appetite drops off as they get older. I'm not sure what the mechanism behind that is, but but that's a problem because people will say, oh, well, I'll just fast. But if you're under muscle, if your skeletal system's poor, well, you've got, you've got to put in the effort to try and retrieve that and recover that. For example, I'm 40 years of age at the moment, but when I'm 50, I probably will probably eat three times, whereas as opposed to me eating twice, I, I generally tend to do a lunch and dinner, but I'll probably make sure that I include some form of protein at breakfast, even though I might not necessarily desire it, I might not have the appetite for it. It's sort of like, well, my absorption and my gastrointestinal tract is less able to absorb this. So I've got to try and maximize the amount of protein delivered to my system to keep up with the turnover. The turnover speeds up as you get older. 
as well. I, I, I think there is more to it than just eat when you're hungry. This is what I used to say. I just you say when you're hungry, when you're on a high protein diet, generally people will drop down to one or even two meals a day. But I think we've got to be a little bit careful of that as people age because, uh, you know, uh, because of those factors that I've just mentioned uh, earlier. Personalized nutrition takes that into account. It'll work out well, what's your protein requirement based on your weight and your age. And, and, and I think as long as you give people a rough target to hit and tell them, listen, this is non-negotiable. You've got to hit this protein target, whether it's coming from plants or animal sources, but point out to them animal sources are far uh, more bioavailable and probably more palatable with less anti-nutrients. Once they hit that protein target for the day, it actually, for most people, it should kill that hedonistic approach of hedonistic appeal that food has. I think you kind of start realizing that you eat to refuel and eat to eat for turnover. Whereas once you're stuck in this cycle of refined carbohydrates, refined fats, you, food takes on a hedonistic nature, which I think is really problematic because. Um, as we pointed out, food can be deeply addictive, not just sugar, but fat as well. Fat can be deeply addictive, especially when it's refined. So we've got to break people out of that cycle and we've got to pull them out of that addictive cycle that they're in and give them give them meals that satiate them, that kill that um, horrible hedonistic uh, aspect of, of food. I, I don't think we have to eat for taste, I think we eat for fuel. But at the same time, once you retrain your brain, um, you start enjoying the foods that, that are good for you anyway. And I think this is where it's really important to understand, like, you know, meat is palatable. It's just the modern environment has kind of twisted people's psyche. And I think there's a deep psychological uh, issue that goes along with it as well, where people feel that ethically it's wrong and so forth. And 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 listen, I'm, I'm not arguing with the, the dangers and the problems with factory farming, but we have to realise that meat was critical and will remain critical to maintaining optimal health for our species. I've become a lot more um, objective with my approach, uh, Bet, and what I tend to tell people is not about your carbohydrates, your fats or your proteins. It's really about nutrients. And we've got to start looking at amino acids and protein as nutrients. So we've got to maximize nutrient delivery to your system, right? And so I try and point out to them, listen, you're nutriently deprived. Your, your iron's low, your vitamin D is low, your B12 is low. So I try to be objective about it using blood tests. And, and you'd be amazed at how many people are nutrient depleted. Additionally, I use metabolic parameters, like if you've got visceral fat, if you've got elevated um, triglycerides, which is a marker of probably caloric excess and type 2 diabetes, I, I basically tell them you're, you're fundamentally consuming too many calories. And I use the example of a large pizza with extra cheese or something like that, which might be 2,500 calories, which is very easy for one individual to consume. Uh, versus a grass-fed, you know, steak T-bone, 250 grams, which is about 450 calories. So you need to consume four to five of the of the steaks to reach the equivalent calories of this large pizza, which you'd consume without any issues. Yet you'd probably struggle to get through one steak. So we try and teach people very slowly that really it's about the calories, 
minimizing calories but maximizing nutrient delivery and and we slowly point out to them that listen red meat's probably some of the most nutrient dense foods you can get far more nutrient dense than than poultry and so forth so we do spend a lot of time like counseling them on some of the epidemiological studies that have spawned these hypotheses of red meat and bowel cancer and but but as you can imagine bet it's a like we've been in this on this journey for years and we're learning every day how do you try and squeeze this into a 45 minute consultation with someone it's it's impossible it can be confrontational it can uproot this person's um, ideas that, that that they've had rooted for, for decades so um yeah it's a challenge and and you know i'm mentally exhausted after a, a whole day of consultation i could probably say the same for our dietitians as well but it's a fulfilling journey and one that we're we're committed to keep continuing in this part of the interview i asked dr pran his opinion on both fiber and gluten here is what he had to say. Fiber uh, is found in two sources. You know, you can either have insoluble fiber versus soluble fiber. Insoluble fiber is uh, problematic. Your gut microbiome can't ferment it. It tends to pull a lot of water into the gut. It can um, create a lot of bloating, discomfort, abdominal pains for people. So I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, where it, versus soluble fiber, which your microbiome can ferment completely. So it can disappear completely in the large colon because your microbiome uses it up and they generate this fuel called short chain fatty acids, which is basically butyrate, which your colonocytes, which are the cells lining a column, they love that. So fiber is just another means of us obtaining energy because we are a primate that involved in, in a, an environment where energy was scarce. It was it was hard to come by. So we, we've got this ability to use our colons and our microbiome to generate energy. But we know for human beings that that only makes up about less than 5% of our daily energy intake. There's a physiological limit. You can't go above the 5%. You can't say, well, I'll eat fiber 10 times a day and I'll get all my energy from fiber. It can't work that way. There's a physiological limit to what our hindguts can do. We've got a shrunken hindgut compared to a lot of our primate ancestors. Um, and we don't necessarily have the processing system from a gut perspective. So if 5% of your energy comes from fermenting short-chain fatty acids from fiber, soluble fiber, where does the other 95% come from, basically? So this is the thing, like people have these arguments about is fiber good for you or not good for you? Of course it's good for you but there's just a physiological limit to how much of it you can utilize. And we know that overconsumption of things like soluble fiber will create issues with abdominal distress for people. And um, you often see a lot of people that are very plant-based consuming huge amounts of soluble fiber that suffer bloating. I see that all the time in my clinical practice. And we've got to admit that as a species that we are primarily plant-based now in the modern era, but we are not a plant-based species, which creates a lot of work for people like myself, because we're dealing with the sequelae of that, right? The, the people eating a diet that they're not necessarily built for from a gastrointestinal perspective. So fiber is important. Fiber is great. But, you know, you just understand that there is a limit to how much of that you can utilize as energy. People talk about feeding the microbiome, but 
I don't think we need to overdo the fibre to feed the microbiome. The microbiome is a shifting population and, and, and it adapts very, very quickly. And diversity of the microbiome is brilliant, I think, whereas at the moment we exist in an environment that is very much dietary monotony. So the microbiome, it becomes a very uh, monotonous uh, population as well. So there's no diversity in the microbiome. So that's my thoughts on fibre bed. Gluten in in and of itself is not an issue. I mean, it's fundamentally a protein found on wheat. You can strip the gluten from wheat and turn it into a protein source. It's called Satan, S-E-I-T-A-N. And a lot of plant-based advocates use that as a, as a form of fake meat because it's got very similar texture to meat. So it's essentially stripped off and just turned into a gelatinous mess, which is then they add flavors to it and so forth and, and, and do it. Now, the problem with modern day wheat is probably in the way it's been genetically modified. The gluten content on it has gone up significantly compared to our ancient grains. Additionally, the caloric value of modern wheat's gone up significantly as well. And to complicate things even more, we, um, we're using a hell of a lot of uh, pesticides in particular aspects, uh, things like Roundup on, on, on modern wheat. So what we don't understand is the impact of those factors on the gastrointestinal tract. Um, we know gluten can increase your intestinal permeability, even in those people that don't have celiac disease. And we know that pesticides probably has a very significant impact on the gut microbiome. So if 75% of our diet, as I said earlier, comes from refined grain, you can imagine the amount of gluten being ingested, right? You can also imagine the amount of pesticide being ingested as well. And I think that might be the issue rather than gluten in itself being an issue. I think we're probably just getting too much of it. And, and I think in those that are genetically predisposed, uh, they manifest this thing called celiac disease, which when you think about it, is it really a disease if it's an environmental trigger in a, in a modern era where we're consuming so much of it, whereas historically we had very little of it. So um, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting debate. During this interview, I shared with Dr. Pran that my husband, Spencer, went gluten-free for a while and felt fabulous. But after years of being gluten-free, he slowly was able to reintroduce gluten again. When he first removed gluten, he no longer had acid reflux that he had struggled with for years. He was popping antacid pills like Tic Tacs. But after removing gluten for a while and getting healthier, as he slowly reintroduced gluten, he didn't have those issues anymore. I shared this story with Dr. Pran and wanted his perspective. This is what he had to say. Yeah, absolutely, Ben. It's something I think about a lot, actually. We, we would have um, been this species that, that was so energy starved that we, we would have consumed everything and anything. I think a lot of ancestors would have died trying out things that were probably poisonous, you know, plants and mushrooms and funguses and that type of stuff. And so once you heal the gut, I think you've this, got this amazing capacity, as long as you're not eating something, frankly, poisonous, to, to be able to eat lots of things. I mean, people talk about plants are poisonous and so forth. I don't necessarily agree with that for a lot of people. I think it's very easy to get very polarised in this whole meat-only or plant-only type diet. We're, we're really... Uh, what we are, Bet, we, we, we are omnivorous and, and we've got this capacity to, to hit so many different things. This is what actually makes us quite special as a species. We can exploit any environment um, as long as we're hitting 
adequate protein targets, we will exploit anything. We're, we're, we're amazing. And we've utilized fire and cooking to be able to, to, be able to uh, detoxify a lot of these foods, uh, including meat. You know, meat can be contaminated and, and quite prone to spoiling. So you're right. Like once your gut's repaired from eliminating a diet, which is 75% refined grain and with a hell of a lot of pesticide and, and, and so forth going in amongst other factors, food additives, colorings, all that sort of stuff. Once you've eliminated that on a, on a whole food-based diet, you repair your gut. And I think you can have little bits of it. The gut should be this impenetrable fortress where the rubbish basically stays within the gut and out it comes when the digestion's done. Whereas if you've got a gut that's totally damaged from years of poor eating and years of a chemically changed environment, you develop this permeable gut, which allows for stuff that you're eating to, to leak through, you know, things like lectins and so forth that are talked about, gluten is a lectin, and, you know, there's lectins in various foods. But whereas when you've got this Im- impenetrable fortress of repaired gut, it, it, it is what it is. Uh, these foods come in and if it's not seen to be beneficial to the human, it, out it comes. Um, I hope that simplifies it, but that's fundamentally what this concept of leaky gut is. One of my favorite questions to ask our guests is, what do you eat in a day? What does your day look like? And I especially, of course, want to ask that question to someone like a Dr. Pran who is doing well on his health journey, who has made significant improvements. What is working for them? So take a listen to a day in the life of Dr. Pran. Believe it or not, Beth, I'm, I'm very monotonous. Uh, yeah, you know, I did. <laughs> I'm very I'm very routine based so you know it's black coffee in the morning I try and you know get nice filtered stuff black coffee in the morning then I train and then I don't eat till about lunch lunch gen- generally you know three or four eggs with a bit of lamb or a bit of chicken or something like that good quality eggs is I think better than poor quality eggs obviously you know pasteurized eggs um, and then I generally eat again at dinner and at dinner you generally all built build my meal around some sort of you know, well-raised animal that is often red meat. It's often beef or lamb-based. Um, occasionally we have goat and venison and things like that. We're pretty lucky here in Australia. We've got access to all those beautiful meats. I'll have things like potatoes and sweet potatoes and, and, and fruit. I eat a lot of fruit, um, especially low sugar fruits I tend to prefer but if I'm doing a lot of training I'll have high sugar fruits like you know mangoes and and cherries and things like that and I tend to have very little grain in my diet I might have a few nuts again based on how hard I'm training Uh, if I if I'm not training that hard for a block then I'll reduce my caloric intake to to meet with that and I just kind of rinse and repeat that every day and it it works for me I realize it might not work for everyone but um, it works for me. Okay, for those of you that survived the 90s, maybe you were like me where baked potatoes were at every meal. And I remember Susan Powder loving the baked potato. Now it seems potatoes have been kind of demonized, especially in the low-carb communities. So why not ask Dr. Pran about the potato? I think potato is actually a highly satiating food. Um, If you're blending it and turning it into mash and putting butter in it and so forth, then it's easy to overconsume it because it's lost its matrix fundamentally. But potato by itself or sweet potato by itself is a highly satiating food. Potatoes and, and meats, fantastic. And it works for worked for hundreds of years and, and we remained lean on, on diets that were primarily based on tubers and meat and fish. 
so the pota- the humble potato is not the issue. It's the fact that we've converted into French fries, soaked it in vegetable oil energy, and drank it with a, a couple of milkshakes along with, you know, burgers and buns and so forth. That's that's the issue. It's what it's become associated with rather than uh, what it is. And you probably find that people eat more uh, more potato chips than they do the the humble potato now. So um, I think it's important to distinguish between what is a processed tuber versus a non-processed tuber. I think potato in itself is a very valuable energy source, especially if you're doing weight training. I think it's great. If you're a very sedentary person, you've got to question whether you need the energy, really. If you're carrying it or on carrying it on you with, you know, high body fat percentage, then then it's a question of, well, potentially I should now be eating for turnover rather than for fuel, right? Does that make sense? So this is where uh, a reduced carbohydrate diet with higher proteins more valuable. But if your body fat percentage is low, you're training hard, then it's really important to um, replace that. You can utilize protein to build your um, glycogen stores in your muscles or your sugar stores in your body. There's 50% of protein eaten will become that. But if you're totally dependent on that type of diet, it will drive up cortisol, uh, which we know is a stress hormone. So that's not necessarily great great for your body as well so everything in kind of balance according to your height weight age and energy levels is that concept of personalized nutrition a big part of my weight loss journey and many of the guests on this show is their epiphany that they really needed to move to black coffee it didn't mean they could never have cream in their coffee or a specialty drink but the removal of it on a daily basis made significant differences on their health journey. I think the sad part for me is that many of us have the daily habit of adding significant amounts of sugar, cream, flavors, and more to our coffee without even realizing how much they are hurting our health journey. Dr. Pran discusses this topic here. A lot of the coffees are meals in themselves, you know, and people don't count it as such. You know, they'll have a breakfast, they'll have a coffee and another coffee. Some of these coffees are 150, 200 calorie meals. And that's a problem. You know, coffee is a zero calorie drink when it's black. Um, and, and I think, again, it just comes down to your energy levels. Like if I'm training well and I've got a big day ahead of me, I'll, I'll, I'll put in some butter because I like the taste of it. But if I carried a lot of body fat, I don't think that's necessarily a great idea. I think, uh, you know, so people in these low-carb communities have to be very, very careful in the sense that they don't over-consume, uh, over-consume calories that can come from carbohydrate or fat. And I think there's a misnomer in that low-carbohydrate community that you could just overeat all this refined fat like butter. It really shouldn't work like that. When you're eating things like non-refined fat, which is animal fat, it's actually, you can't overconsume. That's very difficult. Uh, you'll get to a point where it's actually sickening. The combination of animal protein with the non-refined animal fat, it, it, it's such a great combination because it is highly satiating, highly satiating. Whereas if you melted butter, right, and you just drank it, that you could just keep drinking that stuff because it, there is no satiety component to it. The key thing is the key thing is satiety. We have to realize that and keep drumming it into people's heads. Nutrient density and satiety, that those are two very, very clear concepts. I always end the interview on Living Your Big Bold Life podcast by asking my guest their bold advice. 
my bold advice would be to study history, not just the history in the last 100 years, but the history that preceded us. We're a, we're a very proud species of primate that's been through a hell of a lot. Uh, we're born to do some pretty heavy duty things with our body and brain. Uh, we, you know, we built uh, enormous civilizations and we, we were nomadic. We foraged, we, we sought out new lands, we explored and people have lost sight of that. I think we live in these um, communities now where people are docile, relatively sedentary, and we listen to central authorities that potentially may not have our best interests at heart. In addition to that, I don't think there, there's some of these central authorities kind of understand the clear concepts of health. So I'd uh, advise everyone to go on their own journey, understand what we are as a species without ideology or too much ideological um, uh, thinking, and uh, try and replicate that because is what I try and tell people is we're all hunter-gatherers and uh, we've just got to try and replicate that environment for our body to work well. Every species of animal works best when the environment that they're in is suited to the environment that they evolved in. It's such a simple way to look at it. So try and replicate that as best you can without getting caught up in this modern world, which pushes consumerism and instant gratification driven by a lot of these corporate uh, figureheads that pull the strings. Bet it'll be a pleasure to join you again and thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to write a review and push that subscribe button. I also hope you will come hang out with me on Instagram, Facebook, and my new website, betlucas.com. And remember friends, be you boldly. The world needs you.